What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Will Ahmed, the founder and CEO of Whoop. Whoop is a human performance company that collects and provides physiological data 24-7 to optimize how you train, recover, and sleep. They've raised about $400 million in venture capital and are currently valued at nearly $4 billion. In this episode, Will and I discuss Whoop's founding story, the trade-offs between distribution versus product, working with LeBron James and Michael Phelps, the biggest takeaways from Whoop's data, transitioning to a subscription model, and more. This was a fascinating episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their smart garments clothings called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone and automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go or on a run. You can then analyze your activity and recovery levels in your app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it, like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you are wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. I've been wearing Whoop for over a year now, and it's drastically improved the way I approach fitness and think about my recovery. But here's the best part. Whoop is now offering 15% off of their all-new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com, and enter Joe at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Optimize your performance with the all-new Whoop 4.0 today. Next up is Public Rec. Are you looking to upgrade your baggy sweats? It's time to check out Public Rec. Their best-selling all-day, everyday pant is the perfect combination of indoor comfort and outdoor style. Myself, along with thousands of others, are wearing these, and trust me, they live up to the hype. Finally, a more stylish alternative to sweatpants that are way more comfortable than jeans. Now, your favorite lounge pants can also be your go-tos for work, happy hour, and the gym. After a year at home, they're definitely the pants you need, now that you need pants. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now, they have an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to publicrec.com and use promo code HUDDLE, H-U-D-D-L-E, to receive 10% off. This episode is also sponsored by CoinCloud. Did you know you don't need a bank account to buy crypto? CoinCloud makes it easy to buy or sell Bitcoin and 30-plus other digital assets with their digital currency machines. It's the most convenient way to make a transaction. With thousands of machines across the country, there's no need to connect your bank account or wait in lines. Plus, they offer live, 24-7, U.S.-based customer support. Simply put, CoinCloud wants to make it easy for you to get involved in crypto. Get $50 off in free Bitcoin when you buy $200 or more at any CoinCloud machine and use the promo code JOE. You heard that right. That's free Bitcoin. For details, go to coin.cloud slash JOE. That's coin.cloud slash JOE. And don't forget to use promo code JOE for free Bitcoin. All right, Will, thank you so much for doing this today. I know you have a million things that you could be doing. So thanks again. How are you doing today? 
Awesome, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Happy to. All right. Let's start with one of the things I'm fascinated with is you guys are obviously an amazing company now, right? You guys have 650 employees or more. Your last round raised was at a $3.6 billion valuation, and you guys have become kind of the standard when it comes to wearables. But I would love to start all the way back at the founding of Whoop and just understand a little more of like how you guys started, what was the problem you were looking to solve and so on. Yeah, I got into the space personally because I was always into sports and exercise growing up. I probably played about a dozen different sports as a kid, and I ultimately ended up playing squash in college at Harvard. And that experience of being a college athlete made me feel like I didn't really know what I was doing to my body while I was training. I was someone who used to overtrain where you effectively get fitter and fitter and then all of a sudden fall off a cliff because you've pushed your body too far. I was around other athletes who got injured or misinterpreted fitness peaks or undertrained. And, and so I got very interested in how could you better understand training? How could you even better understand the human body? What did it mean to train optimally? How could you prevent injury? And, and how could you ultimately be a more optimal or healthy human? And that led me down this rabbit hole of physiology research. So I read something about 500 medical papers while I was in school and ended up writing a paper myself around how to continuously understand the human body. And I would say that physiology research really became the business plan for WHOOP. I did a lot of that research when I was an undergrad at Harvard. So this would have been around 2010, 2011, ultimately started the company in 2012. Right. So you start the company in 2012. And obviously, this is a completely different landscape than we have today. Wearables have become much more popular. And specifically, venture capitalists love to fund these ideas now. But back then, it obviously wasn't as popular. What was some of the feedback you got early on when you guys went out to go raise money for this idea? Well, in 2012, 2013, I would say it was challenging to raise capital for this business. I think a lot of our financings actually were challenging looking back on it, but particularly between the years of like 2012 and say 2014, we were setting out to build what was a very ambitious set of technology. And it was at a time where there also were now other products sprouting up. So Nike had just released the Nike Fuel Band. Adidas had a product called the Me Coach. Fitbit was starting to really become a large technology startup. They weren't publicly traded yet, but they were well on their way. Jawbone, which was another successful startup at the time, had raised hundreds of millions of dollars and was moving into the, the wearables market. So we had a bunch of players in the space. And I think that made the story for what we're doing complicated, at least for the broad set of investors. And it was a very popular question as to why we needed to build hardware. Why don't you just build software and plug in these other hardware products that are being made? I mean, even polar chest straps and Sunto and Garmin, those were pretty established forms of measuring exercise at the time. But I think what resonated for the investors that we ultimately raised capital from was that we were going to build a technological system that was very accurate and very sophisticated and able to measure things about the human body that prior technologies had never been able to. And I think that's a hard type of company to build. You know, I think there's sort of two different types of companies to build. One where a lot of the risk you're taking on up front in terms of being able to build the technology and there's sort of an existential technology risk. And then I think there's other types of companies that are more iterative in nature where you can um, test and pivot and iterate and fail, so to speak, your way to success. 
for Whoop, we really had to get all the technology right up front in order to ultimately build the business we built today. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And one of the things that has always amazed me, looking back, it seems pretty obvious now, but maybe at the time it didn't, is some of the hardware decisions you guys ultimately ended up making, right? So when you look at all the other products on the market, essentially all of them are a watch. They tell time and they're to be worn on the wrist. And then they all do things like track steps and other variations of that. You guys, to my knowledge, have never done that, or at least not any point that I'm familiar with. What was the strategic decision behind that? Yeah, I think that Whoop is great at a lot of the things that it does for all the things that it doesn't do. You know, we've been very focused in the reason that we've built hardware. Our intention in building hardware was to build really accurate health monitoring and to create a system that was easy to wear. And that's a surprisingly hard set of circumstances in that of itself. You know, Whoop does not, for example, allow you to make phone calls. It doesn't have a watch interface, as I showed here on my wrist. It's mostly material. In fact, when you look at it, you wouldn't even immediately know that it is a piece of technology. A lot of that was intentional. And rather than this sort of paradigm of watch, no watch, we looked at a paradigm, which was how do we make wearable technology that's either cool or invisible? And cool being something that you're willing to wear 24-7, something that aesthetically resonates for you. So that's where, you know, a lot of our band design has come in, the ability to swap in and out these different bands and materials. Here I'm wearing a gold and blue one, but you can swap these out very easily and, and ultimately put in all sorts of different materials and bands that resonate for you. So that's this idea of making it aesthetically something that resonates. And then separately, this idea of invisible is how do you make wearable technology disappear altogether? And maybe people don't want to wear something on their wrist at all. And that's where we've now released technology, which allows you to ultimately wear the sensor anywhere on your body. So you can actually take the material off as I do here on video, and you can actually put this now in a bra in shorts and boxers in women's underwear and soon to be more. So this is starting now to move throughout your body and still be able to provide ultimately that health data. And in the process of looking at those paradigms, so how do you make it something that's cool to wear and how do you make it something that can disappear? We didn't feel like adding a watch face necessarily benefited either of those paradigms. And the other thing about making it a watch is that then you're competing with other watches. People are very unlikely to wear two things on their wrist that tell the time. There's just something odd about that but they are willing to wear one thing that tells the time and one thing that doesn't. So by virtue of not telling the time, we're not competing directly with an Apple watch or a Rolex or fill in the blank. So that's also, I think, helped us play better in the space. Yeah, I will say it is funny. I own both. I'm only wearing the Whoop right now, but I wear the Apple Watch from time to time. And it's interesting because you don't want to ever take off the Whoop necessarily because it's 24-7 and it tracks everything. But the watch becomes much more expendable if you don't need notifications or time or these other things. So that's super interesting. The one other thing I'll add, Joe, is we made the engineering more complicated in other ways. So for example, we invented this little battery pack, which you're familiar with by now, which allows you to charge the sensor, right? Without ever taking it off your body. So I just go like that. And now I'm charging my whoop and wearing this for an hour gives me a, another five days of battery life. Again, it goes back to continuous health monitoring. For us, it was very important that someone would never have to take whoop off their body. So that was an area where we over-invested in engineering versus taking a narrower focus. 
Do you have any sense of what kind of impact that's made? Obviously, you're talking about over-investing in one area so that people don't take it off. Are you guys able to quantify how many people are wearing a Whoop, maybe 24-7 or at least for an extended period of time? We look at the way that people use our product in a lot of different ways, but one sign that the battery pack and even the overall design of the product has made it easy to wear continuously is that if you look at the percentage of people who have worn Whoop today for a minute versus the percentage that have worn it for over 23 hours, those percentages are very, very close together. I think about two or three percentage points apart. And when you extrapolate that across an enormous user base, that's a pretty compelling statistic. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the things I would love to talk about is kind of your guys' approach to marketing and distribution. I think early on, I've read that Michael Phelps and LeBron James were each within maybe the first 100 users of Whoop. And you guys have obviously infiltrated the athlete scene a lot, whether it is CrossFit or golf or football players or baseball players, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about what part of that was intentional of saying, hey, this band needs to be good enough for the professional athletes and then we'll democratize access for kind of the everyday athlete? It was a very intentional strategy to target professional athletes initially. And I would say that it was intentional for two reasons. One was that I felt as an initial market, professional athletes would be the most inclined to really want data, accurate, accurate data around sleep and recovery and how hard they were working. You know, if you're going to make millions of dollars based on your availability to play a sport, it seems so obvious that you need to measure sleep and recovery as an example to make sure that you're optimizing for that availability or for that, that overall health. So I thought the initial market was best for professional athletes. I also thought they'd be willing to pay for the product. The second is that if we could truly get the world's best athletes to wear Whoop, we would be the first wearables company, so to speak, to do so. And it would create a really great and authentic brand halo for the company and and help us become a brand. So I would say it was a harder strategy, really focusing on professional athletes for the first few years of the company. But it was certainly one that has paid off. And it forced us along the way as well to really gut check how good our technology was. I believe that if the technology lived up to its promise, the world's best athletes would be willing to pay for it. And I believe that if it didn't live up to its promise, there was no amount of money we could pay an athlete or even equity we could give them to get them to wear it. And a good example of this was the Nike Fuel Band. I mean, Nike had the world's best athletes under contract and none of them wore the Nike fuel band because it wasn't a product that was compelling for them. And it wasn't a true differentiator from a health monitoring standpoint. So for those reasons, we were very focused on going after pro athletes, having them love the product, and then ultimately using that initial launch point as a story for why whoop is better in the consumer market. Yeah, it's incredible marketing in itself, but there's hundreds, if not, I guess, thousands at this point of professional athletes wearing Whoop. Is there one that stuck out into your mind where you're like, your younger self couldn't believe seeing that athlete wear a product that you had built? It was very cool. I mean, you mentioned LeBron and Phelps. I mean, they were two of our first hundred users. So that was kind of a big deal for us. I remember in 2014 watching a Christmas basketball game and there was a cut to commercial and it was LeBron James and a Kia commercial. And he was wearing his whoop in the Kia commercial. And I thought like, what a great sign that one of the world's best athletes is so hooked on the technology that he won't even take it off when he's doing a brand promotion for a different company. So it was moments like that, you know, before we had a real business that give you some sense that what you're building is important and that you're on the right track. 
Yeah, that's unbelievable. I didn't know that. And that's crazy because you would assume for a commercial, that's something easy to just rip off for a second and put back on when you're done. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. He wanted the 24 seven data and you can actually, you can go find the commercial. It's like a commercial of him going to space. And so it's funny to see it on his wrist. I love that. That's cool. So maybe let's touch on kind of what these metrics, what it was available to the average consumer before and after. So I think the metrics you guys prided yourself on were HRV to start, I think was the one that was kind of universally not available to a bunch of people and you guys made it available. But Whoop obviously does a bunch of other things like sleep stage recognition. You do all the kind of heart metrics and everything. Maybe just talk a little bit about democratizing that access and giving new metrics that previously weren't available. I'm assuming most of these things you either had to go to the doctor for or you had to do really expensive testing to figure out. A good way to think about it from a the, the gold standard of the technologies before Whoop is for exercise, most people wore a heart rate monitor or a chest strap, right? And that was, you know, sort of this uncomfortable chest strap that wrapped around your chest and you would primarily wear just during exercise. So that was sort of the main exercise product. The electrocardiogram, which is the medical technology you'll often see in movies in a hospital. If a character's dying, you'll see the beep, 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 you know, that machine in a hospital, that's an electrocardiogram. It's got the nodes connected to different places on your body. The main benefit of electrocardiogram from a continuous measurement standpoint is the statistic called heart rate variability. And then a sleep laboratory, which is where you can go and again, be connected to a bunch of different nodes and be hooked up to what's called a PSG machine and get a gold standard analysis of the percentage of time that you spend in bed, how much of that is say REM sleep or slow wave sleep, light sleep, how much time do you spend awake? What are your disturbances? So from a pure physiology research standpoint, those were the three products I was most interested in. And Whoop has essentially taken those three technologies, which, you know, in some would be tens of thousands of dollars and put them in a very small, comfortable form factor that you can wear 24 seven. So we do heart rate monitoring within the same accuracy as a chest strap. We measure heart rate variability to the 99th percentile of an electrocardiogram. We also do it while you're sleeping, which means you're unconscious. So you're not aware of the fact that it's taking a statistic. Heart rate variability, which we can talk more about, is a very noisy statistic because even just what you're thinking in a given moment can change your minute to minute heart rate variability. And then sleep, which has also been a breakthrough to be able to provide gold standard sleep quality data from your wrist was quite a breakthrough. So you know, you can think of all of that rolling up to strain, recovery, and sleep, which are three main pillars if you're using Whoop. Yeah. So anyone who has worn a Whoop knows that at the end of each day or each morning, you're asked a series of questions that essentially tries to assess how you might react to certain things, right? So how did you sleep? Did you experience any stress? Did you share a bed? All these things. You guys obviously collect a lot of data on this stuff. What are like the most obvious things, right? Because if you just want to play the 80-20 rule of being healthy, to me, the most obvious thing is don't drink, get enough sleep, keep stress down, right? Like try to be as happy as you can. Are there other things that are just very obvious to you guys now that you look at a lot of this data? Yeah, you're, you're referring to the Whoop Journal, which is where Whoop members can input a lot of different things about their body or their lifestyle, things related to their diet or their sleep habits or relationships, supplements, recovery habits. They can input these things and see how those different modalities are affecting their health and affecting their Whoop data. Now, a lot of these things are highly personal, which is why it's interesting for people to input them for themselves. So for example, 
melatonin helps me fall asleep a little better, but it may not help you, Joe, fall asleep a little better. There's certain supplements, melatonin, magnesium, as they relate to sleep, where you can make less of a generalization. It's more someone needs to try it for themselves and see if it benefits them. I'm careful to give advice that's super general because many things are personalized. I would say the main general ones, especially as they relate to sleep, which is very mainstream, obviously, for all of us, you generally want to go to bed in a colder room. Most people's bedrooms are too warm. You want the room to be incredibly dark and quiet. You want to avoid eating within typically three hours before going to bed. This is one which can get slightly more personal. Some people can eat closer to bed, but for the most part, three hours is a pretty good time frame. You want to avoid drinking alcohol. We do see a smaller percent of people sleep better with one glass of alcohol. Again, it's a smaller population of people. Once you see two to three and beyond, it almost inevitably is affecting your sleep negatively. It'll affect your next day recovery. Generally speaking, some form of mindfulness, meditation, breathing exercises, people who do those tend to have higher heart rate variabilities. They tend to have lower resting heart rates, which are obviously great signs for your overall cardiovascular health. There's more specific things we can get into related to other modalities, but I think that's sort of a good general range of stuff. All right. So one of the fascinating things, and I forget where I heard it, so forgive me if I don't give the source credit wherever it was, but I remember hearing maybe two years ago, three years ago, you saying something along the lines of that you can basically tell if someone is happy based on the amount of hours they sleep. And I thought it was a fascinating concept of just like how important sleep is. And the more that I've looked at some of this stuff, so I sleep on an eight sleep bed, right? I wear a whoop to study kind of how I sleep throughout the night. And what I found is, yeah, the temperature obviously helps a lot. And then the different cycles are super important to track. So maybe just talk a little bit about the idea of like the different cycles and how you can tell basically if someone's happy or not based on their sleep pattern. So if you ask someone who doesn't measure their sleep, how much sleep did you get last night? You know, they'll say something like, well, I went to bed at 11 and I woke up at six. I got seven hours of sleep. That's pretty good. As you and I know, Joe, what that really means is they spent seven hours in bed. And within the seven hours they spent in bed, they spent time in different stages of sleep. Those stages included REM, slow wave sleep, light sleep, and periods when they were awake. So those are the four different periods. Light sleep and awake have very little benefit for your body physiologically. REM sleep and slow wave sleep have enormous benefits. Like that's really where the magic happens. So REM sleep is when your mind is repairing. If you want to have high cognitive function, you need REM sleep. This is also typically when people will have dreams. So if you're not having dreams or you can't seem to remember your dreams, you might not be getting enough REM sleep. Slow wave sleep is when your body produces about 95% of its human growth hormone. So there's this idea that you get stronger in the gym. Really, you break your muscles down in the gym. You actually get stronger during sleep when you're repairing your muscles and you're producing human growth hormone. So all the magic is REM and slow wave sleep. Now let's go back to the person who spent seven hours in bed. The person who spent seven hours in bed could have spent a total of 30 minutes in REM and slow wave sleep, which would be really not a lot. Or they could have spent over five hours in REM and slow wave sleep. And there's really an ocean in between those two numbers. I mean, getting a few hours of REM and slow wave sleep a night versus less than one hour is going to dramatically change the way you feel. And so I really believe you can only manage what you measure. And if you don't measure what percent of time you're spending in bed is quality sleep, it's very hard to know whether introducing new 
habits, lifestyle decisions, behaviors, diets, you name it, is impacting you positively or negatively. And given that this is like a third of our lives, to me, it's pretty crazy that people aren't more eager to figure out, well, how can I just make sure the amount of time I spend in bed is more effective? And often it's just tweaking a few things. We're not talking about lifestyle overhauls. Often people can figure out a couple things that really make a big difference. And, you know, you end up feeling a lot healthier and to your point, a lot happier. Yeah. So my next question off of that, I guess, would be how much of this is just innate to the person or hereditary to some extent? And then how much of it can be optimized through certain tricks or ideas like keeping the room colder, sleeping in a better format or stuff like that? Like how much of it can actually be changed versus is just innate to that person? I personally believe a lot of it can be improved and changed. I mean, one thing that we see on Whoop is that if you've been on Whoop for a year, on average, you're getting an hour more sleep. Some of that's because people are spending more time in bed, but some of it's also that they're optimizing some of the things that we just talked about. So I think sleep, like, you know, most things in life is something that you can improve and work at. Yeah. I think a lot of people probably have trouble seeing into the future of what some of this stuff can look like, but I'd love to hear from you what you can share. Obviously, I know you guys are probably working on a million different things when it comes to the future product roadmap, but just like, how good can this tech get? Like, are we going to be going to the doctor for everything like we do now? Is some of this going to be on our wearable? Just talk me through kind of how you think what the future looks like. Yeah, some of this I have to keep a little closer to the chest from a Whoop perspective, but I'll talk more generally about the opportunity. If you look at a lot of healthcare costs today, one of the reasons the healthcare system screwed up is so many costs are curative. And if you can move a cost from being curative to preventative, you can make it much more efficient and much more cost effective. And I think wearable technology can play an enormous role in alerting people to issues before they happen. And I think heart attacks and disease states and illnesses and many of the things that we identify today as too late health challenges, I think they can be identified much earlier by wearable technology. And our position at Whoop is to invest in that future and build it. So off the back of that, for those who aren't familiar that are listening to this, Nick Watney is a professional golfer who was wearing a whoop and was able to diagnose himself essentially with COVID or realize that he had COVID before he tested positive to it. Can you just talk me through that story a little bit and how whoop was able to assist there? Yeah, I'll go back a few months earlier. So, you know, January 2020, I think we were tipped off early that COVID-19 was going to be a global pandemic. We had a board member who was an expert at growth and kind of understood R not and said, look, just based on the R not here, this is going to be everywhere. So we started doing research in January of 2020. We were the first consumer app to have COVID-19 tracking in the app, which meant that you could alert the app if you got COVID and therefore help Whoop create a data set on what does Whoop data look like if you have COVID-19 before, during, after. By the end of March, we had thousands of people report having tested positive. And by the summer, we had partnered with Cleveland Clinic and CQU and published peer-reviewed research to demonstrate that a statistic called respiratory rate, an elevated respiratory rate, could be a predictor of COVID-19. And in fact, we had seen a spike in your respiratory rate in 80% of COVID-19 cases. So in June of 2020, this was pretty groundbreaking research. Obviously, we had worked with leading research institutions to put it out there. We were quite proud of it, but it also helped the WHOOP member base understand 
how they could use Whoop data to identify COVID. And Nick Watney, who had been on Whoop, I think for a couple of years at that point, was going to play in one of the first tournaments back. And keep in mind, the PGA Tour, led by Jay Monahan, was the first sport back in all of professional sports in the United States. So they were the first sport to be playing in the world of COVID. And like everyone, they were figuring out what protocols could be and, and how to handle it. Nick, to his credit, showed up on a Tuesday. He tested negative for COVID. Fast forward to Thursday morning, and he sees on his whoop that he's got a 1% recovery. And he sees this massive spike in his respiratory rate. Again, respiratory rate, number of breaths you have while you're sleeping in a minute. And it's a very steady statistic. We almost never see it change. The reason it spikes because of COVID is that COVID is often a lower respiratory tract infection. So if you have a lower respiratory tract infection, it makes sense that your breathing goes up. Nick had seen the research that we put out and therefore went to the doctors Thursday morning and said, hey, I think I should get tested again. My whoop is saying that there's something wrong with me. And the doctors actually said, look, you're cleared to play. You can play the next four days in the tournament. And he really forced their hand, fortunately, to test him. And sure enough, he tested positive. So he was able to drop out of the tournament, obviously not spread COVID at that time. And fascinatingly, the PGA Tour really took decisive action and, and procured over a thousand whoop straps for everyone, not just the players, but the caddies, the staff, and a variety of people associated with getting those tournaments off the ground. So it was a compelling story for how whoop data could help. And I can say now today, we've seen this probably tens of thousands of people on Whoop have, have identified COVID by looking at the data. Yeah, it's amazing. Not only because it was able to help him stop the spread to other people within the tournament, but he had no symptoms, right? So the idea yeah. that his wearable was going to tell him and lead him to believe he had COVID without actually feeling anything, I thought was amazing. And a credit to the technology, obviously. Thank you. I mean, it's it's a little surreal, actually, to have built technology that can help during this moment. And in some ways, we almost undersold it because we wanted to make sure that it wasn't unintentionally taking advantage of the moment. But the data just jumped off the screen for how obvious respiratory rate was as an indicator. So we've published that research and you can find it online. It's also on whoop.com slash locker, which is our blog. And it just talks about how respiratory rate's an important measurement. Yeah. So I want to talk about a few more things and then we'll get into some of the supply chain issues you guys are focusing on today. One of the things that I'm fascinated with is you guys completely changed your pricing model. You used to be a premium wearable that was about $500, a one-time purchase, and now you're a subscription-based product. Walk me through just why you made that change and kind of what led you data-wise to make that decision. So we launched to consumers at the end of 2016, early 2017, and we were selling Whoop as one-time hardware, so $500, which would have you know, been sort of a high-end fitness watch, but probably the most expensive wearable in the space. And what we saw over the course of, say, the next 12, 18 months is that people who bought Whoop were continuing to wear it. A big challenge in the wearables industry was this idea of drop-off rates. So people who had used the product for three weeks or three months and then no longer using it. This was a big challenge for Fitbit. And the bigger challenge we had is we weren't selling a lot of them, but we saw that the people who bought them stayed on it. That's where we started to investigate, okay, is there a better business model for selling this product? And around the same time, we saw Fitbit, which was a publicly traded company, trading at about one to two times revenue, which 
as you know, is not a great multiple to be trading at. Meanwhile, another company called Peloton was trading at about 20 times revenue, and this was in the private market. And the question became, well, would you rather grow up to look more like Peloton or Fitbit? And so for us, we wanted to see if our business model could look more like a subscription. So the combination of things led us to changing the entire business model to being a subscription. And it also really allows us, I think, to build a more mutually beneficial relationship with our members because we have to continue delivering value for you every day, every week, every month, every year. Otherwise, you can cancel. And if you're someone who's trying to figure out if wearable technology is right for you or Whoop is right for you, you can now sign up for Whoop for $30 and we'll send it to you you know, in the mail for free. The hardware is now free as part of the subscription. And so you can get up and running pretty quickly on Whoop without much cost and figure out if it's a technology that you like. So for us, it's betting on the experience, it's betting on the product, and then giving people the opportunity to try it and fortunately enough fall in love with it that it's a good relationship and a good business model. Yeah, that's a fascinating case study, I think, from a business perspective. But one of the other things that you mentioned, which I think is interesting, is the idea of Fitbit. Fitbit's a good example because I think they reached distribution at scale a lot more than some of the other companies did. But you mentioned earlier, Nike tried a wearable, Under Armour has tried a bunch of things, Reebok, Adidas, these companies spent over a billion, couple billion dollars on these products, but none of them were really ultimately that successful or have lasted throughout time. Why do you think Whoop has succeeded versus those not succeeding? Well, in the case of big sports apparel brands, I think the mistake that they made is they lost a lot of the authenticity that created those companies in the first place. Nike, which is a story that I feel deeply influenced by, and and Nike is a brand I really admire. If I were somehow involved in the launch of the first Nike Fuel Band, I would have been very focused on how does this product actually first benefit our best athletes? And let's tell a story around how we've built technology for our best athletes that now consumers can use. And then let's create relationships between the best athletes and the consumers to talk about it. I think it was pretty clear that it was a mass market product day one, and it lacked a lot of that authenticity. And I think you can look at pretty much the strategies for all of those big sports apparel brands under a similar umbrella. I think in the case of the technology companies, it was a little bit of misunderstanding of uh, value. There was this notion that if you could just add more and more features, that was going to make it compelling for someone to wear something 24-7 or wear something on their body very often. And you could almost argue that a fashion company had a better chance of building a wearable than many of these technology companies. I'm going to put Apple to the side because they've done a very good job with it and obviously built a very compelling product that's seen mass market success. But if you look at a company, say like Google, that entered the space and exited, Microsoft entered the space, exited, Intel entered the space, exited, there's a few more if I think hard enough about it. But these are, you know, these are really good technology companies. These aren't by any means amateurs, really smart people running really capable companies. And I think where a lot of them got tripped up was on feature creep. So too many features without a core use case and wearability. How do you make this something that's cool and aspirational to wear? That's something that I think we focused on very early and I think has, has helped our success so far. 
So in my mind, there's really two main things, right? The technology obviously has to be good so people like it and enjoy it and use it. And then the other part of that is distribution. So you're getting the product in front of people and people are talking about it, they're sharing it, and they're actually buying it. How do you think about those two things working together? Well, if you look at a company like Fitbit, for example, I think they were one of the best distribution stories of the last 10 or 20 years. I mean, year over year, they were 5Xing the number of units that they were selling. And at their peak, I think they were selling between 20 and 30 million units a year. You know, it's really hard to do. And that was an amazing growth and distribution story. The problem was that they won the wrong game, in my opinion. They won distribution, but they didn't win product. And it was a product that people wore for a few months and took off. And so the best way to make up for that was to just get more and more people to keep buying. Along the way, they didn't build a sustainable business or at least a standalone business. They ended up selling to Google because they didn't have lifelong customers and they had churned through a lot of their market. So I think it's really important as a business is expanding, Whoop or or any other one, that the product is really solid as it continues to go to these larger markets. Gotcha. So you guys were in, I guess, somewhat of an unfortunate position releasing a new product during the heart of COVID and some of the supply chain issues that are going on. Maybe just talk a little bit about some of the challenges you guys have faced with your new Whoop 4.0 and how you guys are fixing that. Well, you know, the global supply chain shortages are one of the most challenging things, at least I've faced in running Whoop. We announced this product in September, and and that was a moment in time when we had all of the components that we needed to, to build our product. And when you have a product like ours that has 150 different components inside, if one goes missing, you can have 149 other components. But if that one goes missing, all of a sudden you can make zero whoop straps. And that's essentially what happened to us after launching the product was we had a component renege on us. And it's just a very challenging thing to deal with. It certainly was painful for us and, and our members. We ultimately credited all of our members a free month on Whoop. And fortunately now we've turned the corner and we've caught up on a lot of the backlog and we'll have shipped everyone's units who's ordered here in short order. So that was a challenging thing to work through. Certainly I didn't feel good about it for our members. And I guess if you could go back in time, if you knew that a component was going to disappear, you would have handled things differently, but that was the hand that we were dealt. And as a consequence, it was challenging. Is your guys' supply chain back in kind of running order as it was pre-pandemic or is it still delayed to some degree? It is. You know, fortunately, we've gotten we've gotten everything that we now need to be back to being a scalable business. But if you talk to industry experts and people who have been in manufacturing and supply chain for decades, they'll say this is the worst period they've ever seen as it relates to chip shortages and supply chain. So it's not something that we alone have faced, although that doesn't make the challenges we've faced feel any better. Yeah, of course. I've had plenty of people on the podcast who have reiterated that fact, though, that most of them actually said that they didn't think that their personal supply chains would be normal until middle of this year, if not later. So it seems like you guys are maybe doing a little bit better job than others in in managing this stuff. So we'll see how it goes. But I got two more for you. One of them is, I'll preface it with the fact that 
Amazon met with you guys, and I think you're probably aware of where this is going, but they met with you guys and then released a product, their Halo product, which was very, very visually similar, at least to the Whoop band. You guys released your new product, and on the circuit board it says, don't bother copying us, we will win. Just talk to me about the thought process behind doing that and ultimately why you guys ended up doing it. Well, it was a fun thing. You know, we realized that we'd gotten to a stage as a company where other companies were copying us. And look, we're still a small organization in the grand scheme of things, but we like to think we're punching above our weight. And so in designing the circuit boards, we did two things. One was, yes, we left a message that said, don't bother copying us, we will win. And the other was that we put the initials of every engineer on the Whoop4 project on every circuit board. So if you're taking a whoop apart, my guess is you probably don't have the best intentions for why you're doing that. So it is, it is a very targeted thing. And I guarantee you there's engineers at big companies who are reading that message right now. And it also celebrates the hard work of members of our team. And, and I think it's still, it still encompasses that energy of us feeling like we're punching above our weight and taking on the world. I love it. That's literally exactly when I saw it, my first thought was like, hey, Whoop is a big company now. They're valued at three and a half billion. They just did their series F round or whatever it was. But this is like something a young scrappy company would do also. And that's the part that I loved was like, hey, don't mess with us. We're still not messing around. So that was cool. The other thing last that I want to talk about is just like how you've changed as an entrepreneur and operator and the CEO of this company. So one of the things that I think is fascinating is that not only are you a first time founder, but this is your first job out of school. Whoop has been everything you've worked on since you graduated. What have you learned or how have you changed as kind of the operator of this business or an entrepreneur, or even more so just as a leader of people along this journey? Yeah, I think quite a bit. I mean, there's a few things that come to mind. One is this notion of disassociating your own individual performance with that of the company's performance early on in building Whoop. And in part, maybe because it really was the first thing I had done professionally in my career. The performance of Whoop and my own performance were very much the same. If Whoop had a great day, I thought I had a great day. If Whoop had a bad day, I thought I had a bad day. If Whoop was failing, I was failing. And that's a pretty unhealthy association. And it's actually not very accurate. You can be executing great as a business leader and for unforeseen circumstances, have things go wrong in your business. We've probably both seen this where a business is actually doing great, but the founders or the entrepreneurs or the executives are burned out and not able to you know, take on the moment or aren't happy with themselves. So it is very important, I think, to separate your own individual performance with that of the company's performance. And what that also helps you do is it then allows you to really focus on how am I getting a little bit better every day as a leader, as a CEO, as an entrepreneur, as a member of a team. And I think that's a healthy mindset to have. You know, If you can get a little bit better every single day, okay, you might wake up a decade later and feel comfortable running a multi-billion dollar company. I mean, interestingly, I feel more comfortable today running Whoop than I did when Whoop was 15 people and we had raised about $10 million. So a lot of it is growing into that role, I think, and, and getting comfortable, getting comfortable with yourself and focusing on your own development. Another thing that I think happens with that growth is the way you frame dissenting opinions and negative feedback Early on in building Whoop, I felt like I got so much negative feedback, so much dissenting opinion that I almost put up a wall to it altogether. It was almost like it didn't exist. And that was more of a coping mechanism, I think, than a productive business strategy. 
And over time, I learned that you really should hear all forms of feedback, positive, negative, critical, and then, you know, learn how to listen to it, learn how to ultimately make decisions from it. And now today, you know, I think negative feedback is almost a source of excitement for me because it helps you ask that question of why do you feel so confidently about something or why do you think you're right? And that may lead to even better insights. So those are a couple of things that come to mind. I think more than anything, building a company is about attracting really great talent. And I've just been so fortunate with like the brilliant, brilliant people I get to work with at Whoop. And I think because Whoop spans so many different categories of things that you have to be good at to have a chance, you know, with wearable technology, I think you have to be great at hardware and software and analytics and design. You probably need some notion of brand or community or both. And so because of that, just sort of wide scope of disciplines to be great at, we get to work with really talented people across a lot of different disciplines. And I feel like I'm using my left brain and right brain and sometimes at both times. And, you know, it's just, it's an exciting and exhilarating environment. Have you implemented any processes that you use to this day? Like, do you journal? Do you meditate? Do you do any of that stuff? I've been meditating now for close to eight years. I meditate every day for 22 minutes in the morning. I would say maybe a third of days I meditate in the afternoon. That I would say is probably one of the most significant behaviors in my life. And I think also helped a lot to my maturation and, you know, learning to run this business. We can talk more about why I think meditation is critical. And then, you know, things related to exercise and sleep and the natural stuff that goes with having run a company about performance for 10 years, that stuff has worn off on me too. Yeah. I'm fascinated about the meditation stuff because virtually everyone who's focused on not only longevity, but physical performance in these things and runs a company or has some kind of great responsibility like this, most of them meditate. So is yours basically, do you just sit there and close your eyes and think, or do you have some other kind of formula that you use? I would say the underlying practice is from transcendental meditation, where you effectively have a mantra that you repeat to yourself. And over the course of a 20 minute period, you'll be repeating this mantra and then a thought will drift into your mind. And at that moment, you get to decide whether you want to think about that thought or whether you want to go back to the mantra and sort of push it through. And that process is fascinating because it allows you to be operating in the third person, so to speak, and looking at your thoughts. The reason that's also quite powerful is it extends, I found, to the rest of your life, less so that 20 minutes itself. Before I meditated, it used to be that I would realize I've said something after I've said it. Or in a heated moment, you realize that you've been quite angry for the last 30 seconds. Whereas I now feel, or you know, the last five years plus of, of having been meditating every day, I now feel that there's like a third person kind of watching and, and I hear this voice, oh, Will's going to get angry before I get angry. And so it just makes you a lot more conscious of what you're doing. It also makes the world feel like it's coming at you a little bit slower, which is a very useful skill. I've done other forms of meditation, other different forms of breathing. Some involve holding your breath for periods of time. Some are more like the Wim Hof method, which you know also relates to the cold, which I've gotten into the cold as well, which you can talk about. But yeah, in general, I, I would recommend some form of meditation or mindfulness to anyone. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. I don't know if the cold Wim Hof method is for me, but maybe I'll start with meditation. We'll see where we go from there. But Will, thank you again for doing this. I really appreciate you coming on. Where can I send people? Are you most active on Twitter? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Will Ahmed, Instagram, same handle. I'm on LinkedIn and people can reach out to me on any of those platforms. Okay, cool. And if they want to learn more about Whoop's new products, just whoop.com? Yeah, whoop.com is a good place to find new products. And I also host the Whoop podcast where I get to interview really high performing people, successful entrepreneurs, athletes, scientists. We've done a bunch of stuff around COVID. So that's also a pretty good resource, whether you want to learn more about Whoop or whether you want to just hear from high performing people. We talked about real quickly before we let go is, is we talked about how Whoop impacted COVID, right? And there were some interesting stories about how you guys were able to tell COVID and detect it early on. Is there anything on the sports side that sticks out like really interesting data? I don't know if I'm even allowed to say this, but I think Patrick Mahomes wears it during games sometimes, or maybe that's not reality or he's not supposed to do that. But is there any interesting data on the sports side that you have seen and just been fascinated by? Oh, totally. I mean, a lot of our performance marketing is and brand marketing is related to sports and performance and telling those authentic stories. So you mentioned Patrick Mahomes, like we published all of his whoop data through all of the playoffs and into the Super Bowl last year. And people can find that on whoop.com slash locker. We also, I recorded a podcast with Patrick talking about nights of when he slept well or poorly in the playoffs and he had a red recovery for one playoff game. So that whole thing was quite fascinating looking at. We've got a bunch of professional golfers wearing Whoop. One thing that we've done is called Whoop Live, where we bring live heart rate to the broadcast. So if you were watching the Ryder Cup, you might see the live heart rates of players as they were teeing off. Interestingly, I think one thing people underestimate about professional athletes is how, how nervous they actually do get. I think there's this perception that athletes are immune to nerves and it's actually that they're just very good at rising to the occasion of nerves and being able to absorb it and deal with it. But that's one of the things that's been most fascinating about Whoop Live is, you know, Rory McIlroy, for example, who's won, I don't know exactly, but I want to say about 20 times on the PGA Tour, had a two and a half foot putt on the 18th hole to win a PGA tour event, not a major, but a tournament. And his heart rate was at like 135 beats per minute. And we were broadcasting that live as it was happening. So that just shows you they are feeling something, even though they're good at not showing it. That's one of the things I'm most excited about with whoop live and, and bringing more of this technology to sports is showing how athletes are able to in real time, handle these big moments. Are we going to get that on the football field or no? We're working on it across a lot of different sports. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Not that this is on the same level, but I'm climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in February and I'm excited to see what the Whoop data looks like because I feel like it's not going to be pretty for me, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, we'll get you on the Whoop podcast to talk about that afterwards. All right, cool. All right, Will, thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time and we'll have to do it again soon. All right, Joe, thanks for having me.